Thanks for joining me today on Prayer and the Word. This is episode 13, the New Testament writer's favorite chapter from the Old Testament. This is Matthew Bryant. Before we dig into today's episode, I want to share with you about my book that recently released on Amazon, How to Pray 15 Days to a More Biblical, Joyful, and Consistent Prayer Life. Let me tell you, after field testing this with a launch team and now taking a large group from my church, over 100 members on a private Facebook group um, through this uh, book study, this book will help you take that first step to a more satisfying prayer life and walk with God. You can search How to Pray, Matthew Bryant, in the Amazon, in Amazon or follow the link in the show notes. Uh, as always, to find out more about the book and other helpful resources, visit my author page, MatthewCBryant.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to my blog for regular updates updates, encouragement for prayer, and more. Uh, Thanks for joining me on the journey to develop a prayer life according to God's biblical design and with joy and with consistency. So let's dig into today's episode. The New Testament writer's favorite chapter from the Old Testament, an introduction. Let me ask you, what's your favorite chapter in the Old Testament? Uh, Some of the Psalms may come to mind. Psalms are easy to identify with according to God's design. Many Psalms lack historical reference points and that naturally make them easy for us to make them our prayers, naturally make them easy for us to identify where we belong in reference to God's Word, how we're to pray, how we're to walk, how we're to live. You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, I earnestly seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Do you see what I mean? It's not hard to identify where we belong in reference to the text. Psalm 23, I I want for nothing because the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 63, I need to seek the Lord like a thirsty person in the desert. Uh, Psalm 119, I need to guard my heart according to God's word. The Psalms were written in such a way for us to easily identify with them. Uh, But some Psalms, uh, like this one, Psalm 110, which is the New Testament writer's favorite Old Testament Bible verse. Uh, Do you know the New Testament writers uh, actually had a favorite Bible verse? Well, at least uh, they had a most repeated verse uh, from the Old Testament. Um, It comes from the Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, this verse alone, Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted or alluded to over 20 times by various New Testament writers. And by virtue of references and allusions, the entire chapter of Psalm 110 is, is probably the most popular Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. What was it that made this New Testament uh, so significant for the New Testament writers? What excited them uh, about Psalm 110? Well, Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. It's important to remember that this is a part of the original Hebrew manuscripts. Jesus uh, believes that this is key to interpreting the psalm as well in Matthew 22, 44, Mark 12, 36, Luke 20, 42. Um, and if someone other than David wrote the psalm, then the, the meaning gets distorted because it's a psalm of David. That's in the original Hebrew manuscripts. Uh, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, our English Bibles distinguishes between the words Yahweh and Adonai here in the Hebrew with a distinct capitalization. Yahweh is all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. And Adonai is translated as Lord with only a capital L, distinguished from 
LORD with all caps. So this is a distinction that the text makes between Yahweh and Adonai. So the Lord says to my Adonai, the, the, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord Adonai, and David is referring to uh, this, says that the, that, that the, the Lord Yahweh is referring to one whom he calls Lord. And some have said, well, this is in reference to the Messiah, the one who's to come. And Jesus' argument in Matthew twenty two forty four, Mark twelve thirty six, and Luke twenty forty two is that if this is in reference to someone who David calls my Lord, this has to be someone who's not only uh, a descendant of David, but someone who's more exalted than, higher than, uh, of greater honor than David himself. And that's why David refers to his descendant as my Lord, because his descendant is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The imagery here is one of a conquest, one of victory. It recalls Joshua standing on the necks of the defeated Canaanite kings in the conquest of the promised land in Joshua 10. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Zion is the mountain that Jerusalem sits on, that foreshadows the commission given in Acts 1.8, that, that Jesus commissions the disciples to go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The image of a scepter is one of going forth in power. Remember, the disciples are now go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. And the symbol of a scepter was a symbol of the king's power. Think of a, the symbol of a country's flag. Two images kind of come to mind. First is the scene from the movie Patriot when Mel Gibson's character grabs the flag from a retreating soldier and he runs and charges to the front and, and pushes this renewed energy and excitement and, and recovers what's an almost faltered battlefront and battle line, and it recovers the charge, and they run forward to the flag. They run to the symbol of power. They run to the banner of the country, the flag. And, and the other imagery is that of the Marines that that, that, that po bravely ascend this mountaintop on Iwo Jima in World War II, and, and they stick the flag in the ground at the top of the mountain to symbolize the coming victory. The battle was still going on, but they stick the flag in the in the in the ground and they they make their claim. They show that the banner's going forth, the scepter of power, right? The banner, the flag was going forward and and the Messiah is sent forth out of Jerusalem with a banner of victory. Jesus' banner is the victory of is that of the cross. And his power is in the resurrection. And so verse 3 says, The people will offer themselves freely on your day of power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. So the freely surrendered people will look to the scepter for deliverance. They'll look to his power. The people are not conscripted soldiers. They're willing freedom fighters joining the conquest of the warrior king. The king supplies them with holy garments. As we learn from verse 4, the holy garments are supplied by his holy priesthood. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You, that is the king, the warrior king, is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is this mysterious figure who appears in Scripture three times, in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then in the book of Hebrews, and primarily in Hebrews chapter 7. He's a mysterious figure, according to the author of Hebrews, who is exalted above the Levitical priesthood for two reasons. One, Abraham in Genesis 14, is whose his name is still in Genesis 14, actually rendered as, as Abram, 
Uh, he'll later be referred to as Abraham. God will change his name. And he offers up to Melchizedek a tithe from the plunder of the battle that's taken place. And then Melchizedek blesses him. That's the second thing. So two reasons that, that is that a tithe is given, and one gives a tithe to the person who is greater, and then a blessing is given, and the one who is greater always gives the blessing to the one who's lesser. And so by virtue of the tithe and the blessing, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and by proxy, Melchizedek is greater than Levi, who will be the uh, uh, the tribe from which Levi will will be the father of the tribe that that from which the law of Moses appoints a priesthood to come from. So the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Levi. This is a priesthood of which a warrior king will belong to. The Messiah cannot be a king from the line of Judah and the priest from the line of Levi. It's impossible to be from both tribes. Um, in the law of Moses, the dual office of a priest king from Judah and then a priest from Levi, it can't happen. Anytime someone tried to do this in Scripture, it went wrong. It went bad for him. Uh, king Uzziah in, in Chronicles, I believe it's 2 Chronicles 26, he breaks out with leprosy when he tries to take on both offices. Anytime someone tries to do both things as a king-priest in the Old Testament, it goes bad for them. But in Genesis 14, we learn that Melchizedek was not only a priest, he was also a king. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which means peace. So he's a priest of the Most High God, and he's a king of righteousness, the king of the land of peace. The remainder of Psalm 110, verses 5 through 7, says this, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He'll shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He'll drink the blood from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The remaining verses, they tell us of a day of wrath in verse 5, the coming judgment in verse 6, and of a certain victory in verse 7. Conclusion is this. Let me ask you, where do you belong in reference to this psalm? Where do you belong in reference to Psalm 110? You either come to the warrior king by virtue of his marvelous mercy and the priesthood that is forever, or by virtue of his coming wrath that is certain. The warrior king will come and set things right. From this side of the cross, we can see that the conquest of Jesus is to reclaim what is rightfully his. For the believer... The certainty of his priesthood offers us hope. Hebrews seven twenty two through 28 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death by continuing in the office, but he holds a priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to deliver to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, that's Psalm 110, that's the oracle of God. That's what uh, God uh, spoke and David listens in on and then reports as a prophet in Psalm 110. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son who has been made perfect forever. For the unbeliever, verses 5 through 7 represents an awful and terrifying reality. 
May the warning of God's word, which is not changing, the word of the oath, offer up a sobering warning to repent quickly. As Psalm 2, 12 says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray to the Lord. God, the one who sends forth our warrior king to set all things right, God, would we look to you and look to the power of your resurrection. Look to the, the victory that was won at the cross for encouragement and the certainty uh, of, of your power in the resurrection that your king will stand victorious. He will drink from the brook and stand victorious. And so, God, we look forward to that day. Pray, God, that you would help us to persevere Rule in the midst of the of your enemies as your church, as you sit and rule at the right hand of the Father right now. And so God, we know the day is coming when you will return. Help us to be faithful in pointing people to turn and look to the great high priest to repent of their sin and throw themselves at your great and marvelous mercy at the foot of your cross. And so, Lord, I pray for repentance, Lord. Lord, help us as we look to you, your banner, your scepter, to lead us as we carry out this commission to go and make disciples of all nations. We ask this in the name of Christ, our warrior king and our priest forever. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining me today on Prayer and the Word. If you haven't already, take a moment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast streaming service. If you would like, while you're there, take a minute and give me an honest review. It'd be super helpful. And if you found this to be helpful, please take some time and share it with someone. Um, you can always reach out and contact me and get all my social media contacts through my website at matthewcbryant.com. And don't forget to go over to Amazon and get your copy of How to Pray 15 Days to a More Biblical joyful and consistent prayer life. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.